Thank you. All right, thank you very much. Good to be here. You know, I've got a heart for the nations apart from when it comes to the World Cup. I'm joking. Uh, in fact, if you're an England fan and you're really uh, you're, you're battling what happened on Thursday, I've got a great talk to listen to. It's called Overcoming Disappointment by Simon Holly. And you can get it on the King's Arms website, it'll really help you. And, uh, you know, I went to bed on Thursday night and I was so gutted, man. I said to Carol, I'm like, I feel so disappointed. Pray for me. <laughs> so she did. I feel better. So, uh, so we're going uh, to have some fun today. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to get straight into it. Lord, we thank you so much for your presence here. Lord, we do love your presence. Lord, we love you. We, we love everything about you. God, everything we're discovering about you that is true. And Lord, today I just pray again for the spirit of revelation and wisdom in this place that, Lord, we would leave this place not uh, having known more about you just in our heads, but also encountered you in our hearts. We, we want to know you, Father. We want to know you more and more and more. This is what you made us for. This is what you created us for. And so, God, I pray today, I pray for those that maybe are here who are visiting or maybe who don't know you yet. Lord, today, I pray this would be a day where even they come to experience that you're true, that you're real, that you're alive, that you love them, you're for them and not against them. Lord, I thank you that you're here, you're present among us. And so, Holy Spirit, we just, we paint a target on our hearts. We say, come and get us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as, uh, as Paul said, we are starting a new series today called uh, Culture Crunch which really is all about how our, our culture gets expressed to one another. And if you're new to the church or you're here just in the last year or so, you uh, may not be aware that as a church we have a, a culture that we've defined that we're wanting to go after in the way that we live and value one another. And we've tried to define that in five words. And those five words are uh, to honour, to accept, to be authentic, to be generous and to be courageous. Those are the five cultural values that we want to grow in our particular field as a church. And really the word culture, it's a, originally it was an agricultural word. It, it comes from a farmer who would literally demarcate the boundaries of his field and would decide what he wanted to grow in that particular part of his earth, his ground. And he would literally cultivate, he'd create the right culture in that piece of ground. And so when we come to talk about creating culture, we're talking about the, the values, the heavenly values that we want to grow amongst us as a community, that we want to grow in our relationships with one another. And the, the culture crunch really comes with one another. You know, the church should be a really easy place if there was no one else in it. Have you noticed that? Okay? But actually, it's in our key friendships, our relationships to one another, where really those issues of honor and courage and authenticity and acceptance and generosity really get tested. It's where, it's where the rubber hits the road, as it were, in our relationships to each other. And, you know, I've noticed it's very easy, for example, to be honoring towards other people when they are acting in an honorable way. Yeah. <laughs> but the culture crunch moment comes when people act dishonorably towards us. Because suddenly, often, it's in those moments you discover what's really in you. <laughs> you know, I, I remember years ago as a student sitting in McDonald's in Newcastle uh, with a couple of my friends, and one of my friends was really irritating me. I mean, he was really being a pain, and I think I just said something, and he directly con contradicted me, and I felt really ticked off. And suddenly, I stood up in the middle of McDonald's, slammed my fist on the McDonald's table, and said, Shut up, you idiot! <laughs> <laughs> so everyone could hear. And uh, the third friend that was there kind of looked at me, kind of, what do we do now? And it's, you know, it's in those moments 
where what's in you, the culture that's grown within you, really gets the chance to either shine brightly or be quite challenged. It's the culture crunch. And so today we're going to start with a crucial culture crunch issue, and it really starts with relating to a very important person, and that person is yourself. Okay? First big culture crunch issue is how you relate to yourself. And it was the great uh, D.L. Moody, who was an American evangelist, he, he said this. He said, there is one person who has given me more trouble than any other person on this planet, and his name was D.L. Moody. And all that's himself. And you'll find that actually the person who tests you most in terms of growing a heavenly culture is yourself. And to grow a heavenly culture really starts with growing something on the inside of us. And there, there is one story in Scripture which just powerfully gives us one man's response to a culture crunch moment. And it's in 1 Samuel 30. We won't read it all together. But in that particular story, King David is the king of Israel. He and his army and his men, they suddenly discover that their, their wives and their children have been carried off by the Amalekites, who were their enemies. And they, they reach this moment of just disastrous revelation as they realize the ones that they love most have been carried off. And it says they wept until they had no more strength left to weep. And then we read that David's men were so embittered in their spirit that they started talking about stoning David, their leader. That's a culture crunch moment. And this is what we read David did in verse 6. It says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. I love that. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David's first reaction to a crisis out here was firstly to deal with the crisis in here. David's own wife and children had been carried off as well. And before he, he knew, actually, before he could feed other people, he had to feed himself. He had to deal with the turmoil in his own heart before he could deal with the turmoil around him. And you see, the truth is it's hard for you to honor other people if, in truth, you hate or disrespect yourself. It's very hard to give away what you don't have. It's, it's very hard to, to be authentic with other people if really... Truth be told, you're not being truthful about yourself. If the issues that you know rest in your life, you just kind of keep trying to stuff down and tuck under the carpet so no one will discover them. It's very hard to live authentically with others if you're being disauthentic with yourself. And David knew actually that he had to deal first with himself. He had to strengthen himself in God before he could bring culture to those around him. And so I just want to suggest two ways in which you can strengthen yourself so that culture can grow in you and therefore through you. First issue is this. Got to learn to enjoy God's grace. Ah, just, just breathe a sigh of relief at this moment. Just, ah, you got to learn to enjoy God's grace. This is the way the writer to the Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 13, 8. So Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. For we have an altar from which those who serve in the tent have no right to eat. And the writer to the Hebrews' point is this, is what you feed yourself on matters a great deal. And we, I think, intrinsically know that about our bodies. What you feed your bodies matters a great deal. 
What you put in will eventually come out in some shape or form. Yeah? You know, I remember, for example, one of the weirdest fasts that I've ever done. I remember when I was working for a council up in the northeast of England, fasts. Did I say farts? I'm really sorry. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm not talking about breaking winds. Fast. Clear that image from your head. When the Lord once asked me to go without food, that's, it, that's, that's much safer, isn't it? He, he told me to, uh, I felt he spoke to me about fasting for six days, but only eat white bread. Yeah. So that's what I did. I, I, for six days, I ate nothing but white bread. I remember working for the council, I would take my white bread in every single day and I would eat white bread. Now, let me tell you, what happens after six days of eating white bread it's not very pleasant. It's not very pleasant because actually what you feed yourself physiologically does have an effect on your body. Now listen, it's exactly the same spiritually. What you feed yourself spiritually has an effect on the culture which you have to give away to other people. What you're feeding yourself with will come out. It will affect your family, your friendships, your relationships with one another. And the writer of the Hebrews is saying this. It's like you've got a choice what you feed yourself on. You could feed yourself, for example, he says, on strange teachings, and the Lord knows there are a lot of those. There are a lot of strange teachings that you could feed yourself on. But he's saying, listen, rather than doing that, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. To be strengthened by the grace of God, to feed yourself on that. Remember once in a, another church that I was a part of, we had a guy join our church, and he and his wife were just completely, completely worn out, burnt out, and they'd been in a church which really was incredibly driven, incredibly legalistic. And we discovered that for the last year, he had been fasting from sleeping in his bed for a whole year. And he came to us and, and, and he started to talk to us about these strange teachings that he's been feeding himself on. That somehow he thought his life would only be blessed if he lived a very ascetic existence and, and denied himself all these kind of things, even sleeping in his own bed at night. He would literally sleep on the floor of his bedroom for a year. And he came to us just totally, totally worn out. And I'm not surprised. And the writer of the Hebrews is saying, listen, you've got something much better to feed yourself on. It's called the grace of God's. His kindness to you in Jesus Christ. And I want to just suggest some key grace foods, some grace truths to feed your soul on. Here's grace truth number one. Jesus' work of salvation is finished. <sighs> Again, just breathe a sigh of relief at this moment. Jesus' work of salvation is finished. It's done. And uh, you, you may remember at the cross as Jesus is, is hanging, is bleeding, is being mocked, is being accused. That's a massive culture crunch moment. And yet what we find pouring out of Jesus is the culture of heaven, is the culture of love, is the culture of grace, is the culture of forgiveness. I mean, it's beautiful. Such a stunning, stunning picture of who Jesus really was on the inside. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Amazing. But you may remember as well on that occasion that Jesus says a number of other things and they're key things that he says. One thing that he says is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just wave at me if you remember, if you've ever read that. On the cross he cries, oh God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he also, near the end, just before he dies, he cries out in a loud voice, it is finished. 
It is finished. Now, those two quotes are actually the beginning and the end of Psalm 22. Jesus in that moment is is quoting a psalm that would have been very, very familiar to the Jewish hearers who would have heard it. It would be a little bit like me saying, amazing grace, how sweet the sounds. Immediately you would think of the hymn. Immediately you would think of that hymn's content. Now for the Jewish hearers, Jesus only had to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Immediately they would have thought, he's talking about Psalm 22. Because Psalm 22 was actually a messianic psalm. It was a psalm all about the victory of God in his Messiah. It was a psalm that was all about what God would accomplish through his servant that he would send to the earth. And that through this servant, his work would be accomplished. And so when Jesus is is quoting Psalm 22, they are immediately starting to click through the verses in their mind. They're starting to think of the content of Psalm 22. And it's incredible. Let me just give you a few little tastes of Psalm 22. It says, I am being poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's softened within me. My strength is dried up like a fragment of clay pottery. With thirst, my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you have brought me into the dust of death. For like a pack of dogs, they have encompassed me. A company of evildoers has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. This is a psalm that was written centuries before Christ was on the cross. And this is what he's quoting. He says, I can count all my bones. Evildoers gaze at me. They part my clothing among them and cast lots for my raiment. This is the middle of Psalm 22. But listen to what happens in the, tr- in the, in the transition of the psalm. As we get to verse 24, near the end of the psalm, this is what it reads. It says, For God has not despised the affliction of the afflicted, neither has he hidden his face from him. For, verse 27, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall bow down and worship before you. For the kingship and the kingdom are the Lord's, and he is the ruler over the nations. All the mighty ones upon earth, the earth, shall eat in thanksgiving and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. This is amazing. Posterity shall serve him. They shall tell of the Lord to the next generation. They shall come and declare his righteousness to a people yet to be born, that God has done it and that it is finished. That's Psalm 22. It's a psalm of victory. It's not a psalm of lament. It's a psalm of God has done it in his Messiah. And that Messiah was Jesus Christ. And when Jesus cried out aloud, it's done, it's finished. Guys, he really meant it. He really meant it. This means that you can add nothing to what Christ has already done for you. You know, you could, you could fast for the next 10 years and go without any food. It wouldn't add a jot on what Christ has already done for you. It's finished. It's done. His blood alone is enough for you. That means that you can wake up tomorrow morning feeling totally lousy, feeling like a complete failure, like a complete loser, like you've not done enough, like you've not prayed hard enough, like you've not done enough righteous acts. But here's the truth. Christ alone is enough for you. He is enough for you. His substitutionary work on the cross was in your place and it's done once and for all. It's finished. His blood is enough. That's why scripture says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you wake up feeling condemned, you did not get that from Jesus because it's finished. And this changes everything. 
It's done. It's all by grace. Every day, Jesus, you are my perfect, spotless righteousness. Every day of my life. Isn't that amazing? Feed yourself on that every single day of your life. Strengthen your heart with grace. Another grace truth to feed yourself on is this. It's to understand that you have been saved by grace through faith, not through works or law-keeping. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So you were saved not because you thought hard, you did something right, you you put a lot of effort into something, that you, you did the right set of works. You were saved purely by the undiluted, unadulterated grace and kindness of God. Jesus said, listen, I am like a shepherd who, if he had a hundred sheep and one of them was missing, I would leave the 99, I would go and find the one lost sheep to reconcile him back. And it's by his work, not yours. His work for you is enough. His work for you is enough. And, you know, what that looks like for me when I'm praying this through is I will just simply, when I'm praying, I'll say, Father, I thank you today that your work is enough for me. Thank you that I'm not justified by the things I do, but by the things you've already done. It's, this one's on you, God. This one is on you. If Jesus took you out to a restaurant, he would be paying. He's paid. He's paid in, in full for you. You know, and so often I, I find it's in those moments, you know, for me, when I'm about to preach, where suddenly you get doubts about being disqualified. Those of you that speak in public may recognize that. You suddenly have these, I can't speak in front of all these people. And it's in moments like that where you feed yourself on grace and you say, Jesus, this is all about you. This has nothing to do with me. This is all by your grace. Everything I've got is a free gift. My, my works can't add anything to what you've already done. Thank you, it's by grace. The pressure's off. I mean, just even before this service, I was just singing that really old song. Some of you may remember it. It's called The Grace of God Upon My Life. And the, the line of the verse simply is this. The grace of God upon my life is not dependent on me, on what I've done or deserve, but a gift of mercy from God, which has been given unto me because of your love, because of your love for me. It's all by grace. Feed yourself on that. Another grace truth is this, is Scripture says that you're called to reckon yourself dead to sin. To reckon yourself dead to sin. Romans 6 verse 11 says this, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Notice there that Paul is talking about grace and that behaviour follows belief. Behaviour follows belief. It says, count yourself dead to sin, therefore put to death the deeds of sin. But you notice behaviour follows a belief system which says, I am reckoning and counting myself dead to sin. Who I am now is dead to sin. Once I was lost and dead in transgressions and sins, but now in Christ I'm alive, I am dead to sin. I'm going to count myself so. Therefore I will put to death the misdeeds of the body. But you notice that behaviour follows belief, not the other way around. That is very, very important. 
And that word there, to, to count yourself dead to sin, literally means to, to reckon or to decide. I am dead to sin. It's basically a decision where you are choosing to align with what God now says is true. You know, I, I've been to New Zealand several times, and I tell you, the jet lag is a killer. When you arrive in New Zealand, your head feels like it's on upside down, and your insides have been turned inside out. And you look at your watch, and you adjust your watch. As soon as you land in the airport, you adjust your watch to your new time zone. Okay, it's now six o'clock in the evening. But your body is screaming at you, it's not six o'clock in the evening, it's six o'clock in the morning. You need your breakfast now, it's time to wake up. But the truth is, I have now crossed into a completely different time zone. The, the reality and the truth is, it is six o'clock in the evening. And I've got to adjust my watch to the new time zone that I'm in, even if my body is going to take time to catch up. And this is exactly what Paul is saying in this passage. He's saying, reckon, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to, in Christ Jesus. And you may think, well, I don't feel very dead to sin. I sinned this morning. Well, Scripture's saying, listen, reckon, decide, align yourself with what is now true. You will catch up. Your behavior will follow what you believe. Count yourselves dead to sin. Adjust your identity watch to heaven's time zone. You are now in a different place. You will never go back to your previous identity. That, that old you is dead. It's in the grave. When you see those people get baptized this afternoon, when they go into the water, their old life is dead. It's in the grave, never to be resurrected. But you are now alive in Christ Jesus. You are dead to sin. So reckon it so. Feed yourself with these grace truths. Let me ask you, are you feeding yourself with grace? Are you enjoying the wonderful grace of God? Are you feeding yourself with the right stuff? Secondly, second truth that will strengthen you, strengthen the culture within you, is that you've got to learn to speak the truth to yourself. Steve Buckland wrote a book and it says this, you're crazy if you don't talk to yourself. Okay? I suggest you, if you don't talk to yourself this morning, you're crazy. And the, the point of his book is this, is, you know, Jesus, that picture of him in the wilderness where he's encountering temptation from an unseen enemy, Steve Backland makes this point that Jesus didn't overcome unseen forces and realities just by thinking correctly, but by also speaking correctly. Jesus in the wilderness chose to declare and speak what was true to unseen realities. And so what you speak, what comes out of your mouth is vitally important because your words have incredible power. I don't think you realize how powerful your words actually are. In fact, James in James chapter 3 says, your words are like a rudder on a ship. And what a rudder can do, even though it's a very small piece of equipment compared to the rest of the ship, a rudder can turn the whole course of that ship in a different direction. And James says that is what your words are like. Your words, even though your tongue is a very small instrument in your body, it has the power to alter the whole course of your life and the lives of others around you. And the writer in Proverbs puts it this way, Proverbs 18, 21. He says, the power of life and death is in the tongue. The power of life and death is in the tongue. And the reason that is true is that you were made in the image of God. 
And God's words intrinsically have power to create and sustain things. That Hebrews 1 says that God is now sustaining all things by the power of his word. His words create universes and they sustain universes. And because you were made in the image of God, your words also have incredible power. Your words have the power to create and sustain things. The question is, what are your words creating and sustaining? What are the words that come out of your mouth? And in fact, more than that, the thoughts that you have rattling around your head. What are those words creating and sustaining in your life? Because your words are a little bit like spiritual fertilizer. <laughs> fertilizer causes stuff to grow. And your words cause stuff to grow. Good stuff, not so good stuff. And literally, your words can create around you spiritual environments in which either the truth can grow or deception can grow. Because your words have incredible power. And I would suggest to some of you that the reason that you feel in the wilderness in certain areas of your life is not because of your circumstances, but because of your declarations. Because instead of what Jesus did, which was he spoke to unseen realities and he changed them, Instead, your words have chosen to align with deception instead of truth. And there are some key areas where we can get ourselves into some very negative speech or thought habits. And I just want to mention a few, and you're welcome. Here's number one. Self-fulfilling curses. Self-fulfilling curses. And, you know, for so many of us, the background track that's going on in our heads so much of the time... Uh, are words that just aren't true about ourselves. You know, when you look in the mirror at yourself, what is the background track in your head at that moment? You know, when you, when you attempt something and you fail, what's the background track in your head about yourself? When you see stuff in your life that maybe hasn't worked out so well, what's the background track in your head about yourself? Because for many of us, it goes a little bit like this. I am I'm ugly. I'm too fat, too thin, too short and too tall. Uh, you're a failure. You're such a failure. You're such a loser. You're, such an, you're so embarrassing. For many of us, that's the background track that we've got very familiar living with. And I would suggest that even our very kind of self-depreciating British humour, where we like to put ourselves down in order to have a laugh, really masks the fact of how we really feel about ourselves, which is we don't really think much. We don't really think we amount to much at all. And what happens is the, the words that we begin to empower because we dwell on them, we think about them often, even some of us, we speak them over ourselves. The words that we start to speak out start to create a, a spiritually oppressive ecosystem in which you start to live out the very things that you started to agree with. So for example, if you live with a reality, I'm just, oh, I'm just an embarrassment. Maybe you do something a few days' time that you find embarrassing. And it just confirms with you the lie that you've already agreed with. Gosh, yeah, I, just, I really am an embarrassment. That just proves it. I mean, no, for me, I mean, 
All sorts of these issues I've had to deal with in my life. I remember one just a couple of weeks ago. I was in uh, London doing a mini-conference with my friend PK and a number of others from the church, and PK was teaching on a session about laughing at lies. And he's like, right, we're going to identify some lies that we're believing about ourselves, and then we're going to laugh at them because they're not true. And so uh, he got us all to just find a space in the room and just start to engage with God. And I, I really wasn't expecting God to say that much to me. You know, I wasn't feeling particularly anointed or kind of God close in that moment. But I just started to pray, say, God, if there's any lie that I've been believing, please show me. And immediately I had a, a memory of when I was dropped from my school football team as a 10-year-old. It was bizarre. Like suddenly I remembered, remembered it. I remembered I played four games for my school football team and then I got dropped for a kid who was in the year below me. And I just remember feeling a tremendous sense of shame and embarrassment and felt like I was such a failure. And then I felt God say, Phil, you've often always felt like second choice. It was like a powerful moment of revelation. And I, again, God suddenly rem reminded me of the name of my PE teacher who made that decision. And he's like, I want you to forgive him. Oh, gosh. God, I didn't even know where that stuff had come from. And I suddenly saw that many things in my life I've been looking through the filter of, I'm always second choice. They always want someone else before me. Now, what's the identity lie that you're living with? What's that background track in your own head? Because the reality is you can't hate or disrespect yourself without offending God. Yeah. <laughs> Ultimately, it's not just about you, it's about Him. Because here's what Scripture says about God's view of you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Okay? This, this is heaven's press report about you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. In fact, when you were in your mother's womb, God crafted and made you exactly how you were. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. It says that you are the apple of God's eye. You're his, you're his treasured possession, that you are his beloved one. God calls you his beloved. Now, at this point, some of us are thinking, actually, I'm not sure I, I believe that. I've got more respect for my opinion than God's right now. Well, that's an issue you need to repent of. If you're living in a position where you have more respect for what you think about yourself than what God says, you've got an issue that you need to dismantle in your life. <laughs> because God's view of you is fearfully and wonderfully made. My beloved daughter, my beloved son, you're my child with whom I'm well pleased. And ultimately, issues of self-hate come back to an issue of worship. And the way that you identify lies in your head is by holding up the truth. You want to identify what's really true and what's false. You've got to hold up the truth. That's what you do with you know, a counterfeit £10 note. The way that you find out is counterfeit is by holding it up to the light and see if the queen's head is on it. Now, the way that you hold up the views you have of yourself, whether you see whether they're true or counterfeit, is you hold them up and see if they've got Jesus' head on it. You see if it's got the stamp of God's word on it. If it has, then you know you're believing the real thing. If it hasn't got the stamp of Jesus on it, then you are believing something that is false. And you need to stop empowering what is false by speaking and believing those things. Which means when you look at the mirror, do not say to yourself, you're so ugly. Because in that moment, you're empowering a lie rather than empowering the truth. 
You're crazy if you don't talk talk to yourself. You're crazy if you don't talk to yourself. And I would challenge you before the end of the day, look yourself in the mirror, look yourself in the eye and start speaking the jolly truth to yourself. Say, Phil, you are a world changer. You are not second choice, you're first choice, boy. You are first choice. The Father handpicked you, he chose you. He chose you. Before the foundation of the world, he chose you. He set you apart to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined you to be adopted as his son in Jesus Christ. That's who you are, holy and beloved of God. Speak to yourself. Second issue where we get stuck in negative thought patterns is in grumbling self-pity. I think grumbling and complaining is probably the most socially acceptable sin in the church. All of us like a good grumble. Many of us, before the day is out, we all have had a good grumble about something. Probably a grumble about something that happened this morning. (laughs) We love to grumble. We love to complain. I don't know if you've discovered this, though, but grumbling never changes anything. No one, through grumbling and complaining, actually changed their circumstances. And yet so often, the, the habit that we get stuck in is we just grumble and complain. And what happens when we grumble and complain is, again, we create around us a spiritual environment in which the very things we grumbled about happen more. You know, for those of you that grumble, for example, you know, it's just so unfair. It's just so unfair. Let me tell you something. The more you grumble about being things unfair, the more unfair things will happen to you in your life. It's true. (laughs) And the very words that you start grumbling about become self-fulfilling prophecies in which you live in a position where you've got lots to grumble about. <laughs> it's like, you know, parents, you've got children. I don't know if you've ever caught yourselves in those really ironic moments where you're telling your kids off for something. I can't believe you're talking to me so rudely and disrespectfully. And then you have a moment of revelation of, hang about, I'm doing the very thing that I dislike. My complaining has actually created more complaining. That's what complaining does. It creates more complaining. Because your words have prophetic power. The things that come out of here are creating and sustaining things. I saw this uh, really vividly recently in Zimbabwe. Uh, We took a small team to Zimbabwe and uh, we were prophesying over one guy called Jacob and a friend of mine, Nick Woods, who some of you will know, began to prophesy over this guy, Jacob, And uh, Jacob had just moved back from Japan. He was looking for a house to live in with his wife and was struggling, hadn't yet got a job. And Nick just starts unleashing this prophetic word over him. And he's like, I can just see God's going to give you a massive house. It's going to be far bigger than anything you dreamed of. Don't think small. You need to think big. And God's going to give it to you for far less rent than you ever expected. And God's just going to massively bless you. And I was listening to him thinking, whew, wow, that's that's a big word, Nick. That's a big word. But then two days later, Jacob came and found Nick and I with his phone out with an excited you know, young puppy look on his face. And he's like, you'll never guess what's happened. And he, he got out of his phone and he flicked through these pictures of a new property that he'd just been offered a day after Nick prophesied over him. Five bedroom property, rent free for two years. Isn't that amazing? Because your words create spiritual environments in which stuff starts to grow. Your words have creative power. 
We prophesied over another guy that he would uh, get connections into the oil industry and that he would be a, a man who released resources into the kingdom. Two days later, he gets a phone call from the fourth richest man in Oklahoma who is a, an oil tycoon saying, I'd like to work with you. Two days later. Because your words have creative power. Whether you grumble or give thanks. I tell you, if you will devote your life to giving thanks, your life will radically change. I'm, I'm serious. Your life will radically change if in those moments we have a choice whether to grumble or whether to thank God. If you will choose to live in thankfulness, your life will radically change. And then the third area in terms of speech that we can get stuck in are the sponsored adverts from the dark side. Sponsored adverts from the dark side. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 10, verse uh, 3 to 6. He says, The weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. He says, We take captive every thought that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought and we make it obedient to Christ. And the reality is that our enemy is a liar and often the thoughts that you think in your head are not your own. They have their source in another realm. Now, your thoughts come from all sorts of different directions. Some of your thoughts are your own. Some of your thoughts are the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Some of your thoughts are just what you've picked up from what you've watched TV during the day. Be careful what you watch on TV. But some of the thoughts that you think in your head actually are sponsored adverts from another realm. And Jesus said about Satan that he has been a liar from the start. And that what he does day and night is he accuses the brothers. He accuses the saints. Day and night, that's what he is doing. If Satan had a job description, it would read this. Accuser of the saints day and night. He is a liar. Scripture says that he is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And often that devouring comes in the realm of our thoughts. Thoughts that are not ours. I remember a couple of years ago going through a weird kind of moment where suddenly I started to have this recurring thought, I'm in the wrong place, I need to move. It's no good for me here, I need to move on. And it was a weird thought, it was like a kind of flash thought that just kind of kept coming into my head. And then I read a book that said, not all of your thoughts are your own. I thought, ah, oh, that is so helpful. And in it, he talks about this illustration of many people, when you've been driving your car, suddenly you've had a flash thought go through your head. If I just turn the steering wheel now, I could end it all. Anyone ever had that thought? Just raise your hand if you've ever, I've had that thought. Isn't that interesting? Now those thoughts are not your own. They're sponsored adverts from the dark side. And Paul says, we've got to learn to take captive our thoughts and make them obedient to Christ. Because the reality is, the enemy is disempowered. He has no authority, he has no power. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority means that someone else has no authority. Amen? So we have a devil who's actually disempowered. He has no weapons. The only thing he can do is talk. That's all he can do. He has nothing else. He can talk to you. He's an accuser. He speaks. Which means that the only way that you empower him and start putting weapons back in his hands is by believing the lies that he tells you. 
So therefore, we need to enforce the victory of Christ by when we have those thoughts to take them captive and make them obedient to Christ because he has no authority. He has no authority. The way that I would simply do this, when I have a thought that I think is not my own, I will simply, I will usually say out loud, wherever I am, if I'm in the middle of a shop or if I'm in the shower or cleaning my teeth or whatever, I will just simply say out loud, shut up, get out of here. Just shut up, get out. That's not true. That's ridiculous. Or I'll laugh at it. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Shut up. What are you talking about? Uh. Take captive those thoughts. Don't just let them fly. Don't just kind of let them clutter around in your head. Don't go to bed thinking about those things. Don't kind of wake up with those anxious thoughts. Actually, just take them. Take control of them in the moment. Make them obedient to Christ. Say, shut up. That's not true. That's not who I am. Get out of here. Take captive your thoughts. Again, another lady in London, we were asking her to laugh at lies. And she came and shared this story at the end. And she said, I... I've always lived with a lie, this, this voice going around in my head that my marriage, which is very, very difficult, very, very painful, that I am being punished for my mistakes. And for my whole life, I've lived with this background track in my head. This is your fault, you're being punished. And she said, the reason was, I went through a period in my life where I backslid from the Christian faith. And during that period of backsliding, I got married to my now husband. And I've now got four children. And she said, I've always lived with this, this, this thought, it's your fault and you're being punished because you walked away from God. And he is now punishing you. And she just began to laugh at that lie. I mean, hysterically, loudly. And she said, as she was just laughing at that lie, suddenly she had this image of the blood of Christ coming and covering every mistake that she'd ever made. And Jesus began to just communicate, it's all about me, I've done it all. You're not being punished. You're my daughter. I love you. I'm for you. I'm with you. I wonder if there are any sponsored adverts that you've been believing. God, take captive those thoughts and make them obedient to Christ. So in conclusion, guys, in order to export culture around you, you've got to first learn to strengthen yourself in the Lord. Because what grows in here will come out out here. The size and the nature of the environment within you will be the size and the nature of the environment around you. And so I want to finish today by doing something slightly different. I'm not going to, not going to call you forward for a ministry time, but we are going to stand together and we are going to declare some things that are now true of us. And we are going to speak with our mouth what heaven says is true of us if you're a Christian here. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, this would be a great moment to give your life to Jesus. He loves you. The reason that you're here is that he loves you. And as we declare these things, maybe this will be your first prayer of saying, Jesus, I want in. I want to be in your family. So why don't we stand together and we're just going to read these statements together out loud. All right, here we go. You ready? Let's read these and celebrate as we read them. I am faithful. I am God's child. I have been justified. I am Christ's friend. I belong to God. I am a member of Christ's body. I am assured all things work together for good. I have been established, anointed, and sealed by God. I am confident that God will perfect the work he has begun in me. I am a citizen of heaven. I am hidden with Christ in God. I have not been given a spirit of fear, 
but of power, love, and of self-discipline. I am born of God, and the evil one cannot touch me. I am blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. I am chosen before the creation of the world. I am holy and blameless. I am adopted as his child. I am given God's glorious grace lavishly and without restriction. I am in him. I have redemption. One more. I am forgiven. I have purpose. I have hope. I am included. I am sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I am a saint. I am salt and light of the earth. I have been chosen and God desires me to bear fruit. I have peace. I have access to the Father. I am a member of God's household. I am secure. Oh, here we go. There's more. Let's keep going. Let's do one more. I am a dwelling for the Holy Spirit. I share in the promise of Christ Jesus. God's power works through me. I can approach God with freedom and confidence. I know there is a purpose for my sufferings. I am completed by God. I can bring glory to God. I am chosen and dearly loved. I am blameless. I am set free. And I am a light in the world. Hallelujah. Let's thank God, shall we? Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. We love you, God. Love you, Father.